Hello, everybody. It's Ben, and I'm here to tell you a little bit about Patreon. Patreon is the website where you can support podcasts like The Lanyard or other creators. We have a few people who have stepped up and are contributing financially to the show, which helps us continue to create cool content for you each week. If we get up to 20 supporters, I have vowed that I'm going to put out two episodes per week. So check out our patreon.com slash the lanyard page. Some of the contributors so far, Sheila Woodward, she's in at the top amount. We've got Baron Yexley out of Watertown, South Dakota. We've got Mason Schramm with Vision Real Estate. Tony Maibaum, Pivotal Photo. Steve Pietela here in Yankton. And now another full-time supporter, the White Wall Sessions. These guys who put out amazing music video content out of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So happy to have everybody on board, and thank you for supporting The Lanyard. You don't have to subscribe to us on Patreon. You can get this for free. What you get, though, on Patreon is access to early episodes and some bonus content. With no further ado, here is today's show. Ladies and gentlemen, it's another episode of The Lanyard. Each week, I like to talk to somebody creating a cool company or a cool community. Today on the show, we're going to talk to Mary Beth Holsworth. You just got into town. That was a heck of a drive to come record a podcast. It was a long drive, but you know what? I think what you do is great, and I really wanted to be a part of it. Yeah, well, thanks so much. So you had reached out a while back and said, uh, hey, I think I have a story you might want to hear. And uh, But as far as distance today, Gettysburg, South Dakota, is that where you came from? Yes, it is. And that's about four hours away. Yeah, 270 miles, according to Google, to come <laughs> talk to us. So thanks for your time doing that. Absolutely. Also, you brought me samples of coffee. Right. Yeah. So the company it. is Globetrotter Coffee Company, and it's a new roasting business. Yes. Yep. Tell me about it and why you got into it. Um, so about a year and a half ago, I decided I wanted another avenue of income, but I wanted one that I was super passionate about. Um, a lot of my other work that I do is um, dealing a lot with people, and um, I love it, but I knew I recognized that it's also good to have something where you can take a step back and just be quiet and creative. So I love coffee. It basically fuels my days. And so I thought, you know what, I think it's great that you can develop different flavors. And I wanted to be, I wanted to learn about that and kind of be a part of that. Um, So I started researching just the, you know, the process and the companies and, you know, um, different beans. And then I thought, you know, I'm really passionate about helping the world. So I didn't want to be purchasing green coffee beans from a big corporate. I wanted to be really help, helping small farms, um, you know, be able to get their product out there. So I found a company that fit right along with that. And, uh, yeah, I've just been having a blast um, roasting and trying different kinds. And it's been a lot of fun. How do you learn to be a roaster? Is it just trial and error? Is it YouTube? Do you go to school for it? Um, all the above. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I haven't taken any formal classes on it. Um, a lot of it was uh, reading um, yes, a lot of YouTube videos. My sister actually um, was working for a company out of Sheridan, Wyoming called Roast. And she actually purchased that business um, a year ago today. 
So I've been learning a lot from her. She's been fantastic, you know. But, uh, yeah, there was a lot of trial and error. I had about three weeks where I ruined a lot of beans. <laughs> but it was fun. <laughs> it was great. It was nice to, to learn, and it was really nice when it started working. So, And the smells, too, right? You get to fill up the uh, entire space and probably your, your town with roasting smells. Yeah, and it's interesting. It doesn't really smell like coffee when you're roasting. It smells more of like roasted peanuts or mm-hmm. popcorn. I don't know. It's kind of this weird mix. But yeah, I mean, even the outside of my building, my roaster and everything is in its own building um, in my yard. And even walking outside, you can smell it. And it just, it smells Yeah. Great. You know, when I moved to Yankton in 2002, we had a coffee roaster just down the street here. It'd be about, well, two doors down from here. And on roasting days, it was just wonderful. You could smell the smell it from blocks around. And now, unfortunately, the only roaster we have in town, um, she she has kind of a really small roasting setup, like a little barrel one, mm. and it doesn't pump out into the downtown like it used to. <laughs> I sure miss that. But right. uh, the the roaster itself, where do you buy something like that? Just an online purchase? Yeah. Um, so I went with a company out of Arizona called Phoenix Oro, and. Um, they they had the the roaster that I chose. I knew that I couldn't have too big of a roaster going off the bat. So I found one that was about uh, three and a half pounds is what I can do um, at a time. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. This whole mission that I've had for the last 10 years um, has really been about rising up from the ashes and, um, you know, coming out of the flames. And, and anyway, so this, this, roaster that I found was a Phoenix Oro and so it was really neat and it fits it I have a red pickup and the roaster is red I mean it just when I saw it I was like this is a roaster I have to have to yeah. start and so yeah it's a beautiful machine it has red and rose gold and um it's, it's been a lot of fun to to actually learn more about how to use it so and what are you doing that is better than like a Starbucks I mean for for me, I know what, what locally roasted beans mean and the freshness, but I mean, maybe not everybody else does. What what makes what you're doing different than buying from a big store? So one thing that is really unique about my company, not only do I focus on the small farms, but it's um, the beans all come from micro lots. So they're not huge plantations that are growing thousands of acres of beans. They're very small. And so when they're in the warehouse, which is out of Wisconsin, um, when they get to that warehouse, they're purchased right away. And that means the roasters have them for a very short amount of time. So you're getting the freshest possible um, pot of coffee when you buy our beans. So that's pretty exciting. One thing that that does mean is that, um, for example, the first month that I rolled out, I had a medium blend called Zambia. And it was directly from Zambia, Africa. And um, it was amazing. It was my best seller um, but then once that growing season you can't get was it. done, yep, you're done <laughs> until the next growing season. Yeah. So that is one thing that's really unique. They're absolutely incredibly fresh. So uh, the, the other thing that's interesting about that business is that you are in a town of like 1,100 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably if people were to stereotype a small town, they would say maybe they wouldn't appreciate something like that. So do they and – do you, does your business model involve getting customers from outside of that small town too? Yeah, I've been really fortunate to have a lot of support. Um, a lot of small communities actually do like that South Dakota homegrown uh, business model. So I have been really um, just thankful for that. Uh, but then also because of the advocacy work that I do um, nationwide, I have been selling 
almost as much nationwide as I have been locally. And so I'm in four locations. Well, it's three, soon to be four around um, the Gettysburg area. But I've also been selling all over the nation. So that's been pretty exciting to have that support. So you're, how do they find you on, online? So I have a website, and it's um, just all lowercase, globetrottercoffeeco.com. And, um, yeah, you can go on there. It tells a little bit about what we're doing. It has a map that we're working on to actually show the locations. And then you can go and you can read about each individual lot of coffee, um, where it comes from, what makes it unique, what the farmers are doing in their community. Uh, and so you can find a lot of information on the website. And then I also have a Facebook page and an Instagram page. So, Well, you've hinted a couple times that you've risen from the ashes, that you've been doing a lot of advocacy work. Tell us that story. So um, I work uh, especially in child sexual assault prevention. Uh, and that's in the last 10 years. Um, it's also expanded to all forms of maltreatment. And that really um, started in... Gosh, it would have been 2008, really, uh, when, or 2009, excuse me, when two of my sons disclosed that they were sexually abused. And so I just felt that it was um, my mission to help protect other kids and really do everything I could to make sure that kids who have been that through that are um, getting better help and can come out the other side, but then also prevent any kids from going through that. So that's been a big part of my life for the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, so the story about your kids when they came home, um, ages? Five and eight. And that's the worst thing that you could have ever imagined. Yeah, it was definitely the, the worst, worst day of your through. life. I don't know if, how much you want to share about that individual story or the, their story, but sexual assault can come in a lot of forms and from a lot of places, right? So right. where does it typically come from? So, you know, if you look at the statistics, it's about 94% um, of sexual assault cases actually happen from someone that the child knows and loves and trusts. And in our case, it was an uncle. Um, so it was my now ex-brother-in-law, but my brother-in-law at the time is the one that did it. So Yeah. So th that happens when somebody's watching your child that they say, like, I'm going to, you know, you're going to... I'm going to take care of your kid. You go do your job or go do your day. Yeah, you know, it, and it never happens all at once. Yeah. There's always a grooming process involved. Um, a coaching. Yep, and, you know, so typically in most of these cases, you know, that the perpetrator goes through a great deal of effort to um, gain the trust of the parents and gain the trust of the child. Um, and it gets to the point where it's really confusing for the child to really understand what's going on. And so that's a lot of times why kids don't disclose. Um, it, for us, it was, I was taken out by my then husband for my birthday. And so we just left him with, you know, the sister-in-law and the brother-in-law and, and that's when it happens. So, um, you know, it was definitely a situation of trust. Yes. And that's, that's oftentimes when the it happens. The worst betrayal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the other thing about children, I remember being a child where, like, here's just a weird story. It, it's nothing sexual assault associated with. But one time I was, my friends and I, we were sitting on the tailgate of a car, and uh, the, the, his, the friend's big brother was like, get off the truck, and we were going to. But instead what happened is he sped off, you know, hit the accelerator while we were still on there, I fall off, I break my arm. And what do you do as a kid? You think that you're going to be in trouble. Mm -hmm. 
for somebody else's actions. You right. think that me being standing on his tailgate is the reason that I should be punished by my parents instead of saying like, listen, this idiot kid broke my arm. Right. Exactly. And so the same thing there, right? Mm-hmm. It's like children don't have the courage to come forward because they think they did something wrong. Right. And oftentimes the, you know, the perpetrators really use that to their advantage. Yeah. You know, they, they convince the child that you wanted this or, you know, your mom or your dad or, you know, whomever will be really angry at you because, you know, this is what you wanted. Um, so it, it becomes very complicated for, for children when they're in that situation. And, um, so that's why, you know, just talking to your kids all the time about different things uh, is really crucial. So when you're a mom and you get this news, mm-hmm. the first things that you do, I mean, you want to verify their stories, correct? You probably even questioned them. Are you, do you sure you have this all right? Yeah. Um, for me, I guess I was kind of lucky. I um, And, uh, you know, faith is a big part of my life. And so I, I always say I have to thank God for just giving me the the peace of mind and the presence of mind. Um, but I have always been around law enforcement. I mean, I had family that was law enforcement. And so I knew, you know, I, I knew enough that kids typically don't make these things up and especially five and eight year olds, they don't have this type of knowledge. You know, I don't sit down with them and watch X rated films. So they don't, they can't make these things up. So, um, I knew I just, it was like instinctively, I knew I had to tell my kids, you know, I believe you. I'm so sorry this happened and we're going to do something about it. And, um, you know, I did, the only thing I did ask, and we, we typically tell people don't ask for specifics, you know, open-ended questions, you know, let them tell you as much as they want, but don't ask when, where, you know, those types of things. But why, why um, don't you ask those specifics? Because if it, it moves forward, um, so say that a, a child is a, discloses and you ask specifics at that point, and then maybe you don't write down the right information. Okay. And then later on when a um, forensic interview was done, and maybe what you wrote down doesn't match what the kid says, because kids aren't very good at details. Now you've got, uh, you know. Yeah, then you have a, a mixed-up testimony, yeah. and, you know, defense attorney is going to jump all over Reasonable that. doubt suddenly creeps yep. in. So I did ask, you know, when did this happen? Um, just, it just, you know, that was just caught me off guard. And it actually had happened on my birthday, and so... Yeah. Um, you know, that was one thing we did find out for sure. So um, but that's one thing that we definitely say is, you know, just ask open-ended questions. Tell them, you know, thank you for telling me. I believe you. And then I, I called the police right away. So. Yes. And obviously the family dynamics of that become extremely complicated quickly. Yes, it was very difficult. Um, a lot of members of the family, even though that the, the individual admitted to what he did, um, a lot of them felt like we should have just... Uh, keep of, it private. Yep, shut keep up. Keep it within the family. Yeah. yeah. But you didn't do that. No. I um, I knew that it wasn't the best thing for the boys. I knew that they needed to be heard, and we needed to get to the bottom of it, and um, not only for their protection, but the protection of any other kids. Well, and, and you had, when you had written me a note several months ago, you said, your five-year-old said, Mom, you have to stop it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, after, after the individual was sentenced um, to prison, uh, you know, they write, an article in the newspaper and you know as the news got around the state about what had happened I had parents calling me and saying how did you get how did you get um you know justice because we went through this and we didn't receive justice and I I kind of was floored I'm like what do you mean like this is happening more um so I did research and I found out how often it happens and so I told the boys um so this was in about December um I said you guys you know this 
this happens all the time. You guys aren't the only kids that have went through this. And my five-year-old, who's, you know, just a little spitfire, well, now he's 15, but he's like, well, mom, you have to do something. You have to stop this. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to see what I can do because this needs to end. So what, how did you start? Um, So I started researching. Uh, I started seeing, you know, talking to parents, asking, you know, what happened in your case? Why didn't you get justice? What was the major hurdle? I started just, um, I kind of became a fanatic about it, researching everything about cases, uh, the laws. Um, We had a local senator, Senator Corey Brown in Gettysburg. And so I involved him in the conversation. And I, for me, it was, you know, going back to my faith a little bit, I knew that, you know, in the Bible, it talks about the walls of Jerusalem being built in 52 days, you know, rebuilt. Um, And I thought, you know, I want to build figurative walls around children. So I'm going to pray about this research for 52 days, you know, kind of circle the wagons again, see where I'm at and go from there. And so that's kind of what I did. I broke everything up by 52 day increments and just found out where I was and where I wanted to be and went from there. I imagine that has something to do with the words uh, or the, the, the name Endeavor 52, which I saw on your Facebook. What is Endeavor 52? So after I decided that this was something I was passionate about, I wanted to basically start an organization. Um, and so I just called it Endeavor 52, and the Endeavor being, you know, protecting kids and 52 going back to that 52 days. And so, yeah, I just went forward with that, and it's kind of stuck. <laughs> so the obstacles that she started to encounter along the way were what, though? I mean, I'm sure not everybody – people believe in the mission of we want kids to be abused less – but the tactics and the way we get there, were there disagreements on that? Yeah, the the biggest struggle for a lot of people is when you, you know, it's it's easy for us to talk about stranger danger because then you're talking about someone that you don't know. An other, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but when you start um, opening people's awareness to the fact that most of these cases involve, you know, beloved family members family and or friends. Daycares yeah. or something yeah, exactly. like that. Exactly. It's really hard. Um, you know, People can imagine the guilt that goes along with that is pretty extreme. I mean, I've definitely worked through that in the last 10 years just as a mom being like where, you know, I I failed to protect my kids. Um, So, you know, people are aware with that, aware of that. And so I think that's the biggest struggle for them is realizing, okay, this potentially could be me failing to protect my kids. um, And I just don't want to think of someone doing that to them you know so understandably it's really hard for people to want to begin that conversation and i mean it makes people uncomfortable yes so when you go on this journey of trying to protect others and trying to make sure this doesn't happen again um also there becomes a funding issue right away too because you're spending hours days weeks gas mileage to to fight the fight how'd you how'd you overcome that um so for me personally, I work four jobs. Four jobs. <laughs> four jobs. Um, it's a little crazy, but I, you know, I started going to school. I put myself back into college um, because I knew that that was the, you know, it would be more education for myself. So I went back and I got my um, associates in criminal justice. And um, I, I keep hoping that at some point I can land a career that will enable me to do this full time. Work one job. Yep. Yeah. And maybe maybe roast two. some coffee beans. I want to do. I want to keep my coffee business. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, definitely work. You know, work where I can focus on helping people all the time. Because right now, everything I do is my own money. 
time off work. Um, and it is, it's hard and I have to juggle it, but, um, I just, I can't imagine sitting back and saying, I'm not going to do this Yeah, just because of money. It wasn't an option. No, absolutely not. But yeah, you know, you talked about going back to school. I, I saw a, uh, photo on your Facebook where you were wearing your gown, uh, your graduation gown next to one of your boys who was graduating on the same day. Yep. High school and, and, uh, associates degree on the same day. Yeah, it was. Or same time period. Same time period. Yeah. 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 It was, um, pretty amazing. I'm really proud of him. Um, and it was great to be able to, you know, he's, he's a teenage boy and taking a picture with mom isn't the coolest thing ever, but he humored me and it was pretty cool to be able to take that picture with him and say, you know what, you've accomplished this, I've accomplished this. And, and I really hope my kids always look, um, look back and know that I didn't stop for anything and everything I did do was for them. Well, and, and graduating high school is, is obviously commendable and, but you know, you're supposed to do that. Mm -hmm. You uh, when you're an adult and when you've got kids of that age, you would say going back to school is probably a, not something that people would expect. So that was that was pretty cool. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, I went to University of Phoenix uh, online, so that gave me the ability to work on homework. And, you know, I didn't ever want to take away time from my kids while I did this. So I usually worked on it from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. And um, it took a lot, a, a lot of organizing and um, oh I get it so that's why you're in the coffee business because you never (laughs) slept I got to the point where I could drink espresso (laughs) straight and it didn't bother me (laughs) so like your sleep was 2 30 a.m to about 5 30 a.m and that's about it yeah 6 30 if I was lucky I could sleep in yeah wow (laughs) well um so the the things along the way so you have made some milestones right there have been successes in along this way what are some of them uh, absolutely. Um, so about two, three years into this, um, I ended up getting together with an amazing group of prof- professionals and we drafted Jolene's Law. And I know Jolene Letcher was on here. Yeah, she was, ma- I don't know, maybe guest seven or something like something that. Like yeah, that. yeah. yeah. And um, she's now one of my dearest friends. And I just respect her in so many ways for her courage, for her, you know, just brilliance and entrepreneurship. Uh, all the things that she does. And so we were able to get together. We created Jolene's Law Task Force, and that led to a three-year study of the issues of surrounding child sexual assault response and prevention in the state, uh, which led to the Center Prevention and Child Maltreatment, which is housed at USD. And that has created this 10-year plan that we are just a couple years into uh, to really create a paradigm shift in the state. And so those have been big things. And then through those, we've also created, um, you know, the REACH Center in Watertown, which is a multidisciplinary one-stop shop for kids who have went through um, various forms or witnessed various forms of neglect or abuse. Um, And then we've created, like, the ACEs and Resiliency trainings and the Enough training. And there's just so many things that we've done. It's it's completely phenomenal. And, you know, anyone can go on to the website. uh, It's... Oh, gosh, I hope I get it right. CPCMSD.com. And uh, they can see all the information, uh, all the projects that we've been doing and the 10-year plan and really see uh, all the incredible things that have been going on. But what? So what are some of the specifics of a 10-year plan? Like, I mean, when you talk about there being a center at a university, to a lot of us that might suggest like, oh, this is going to go very slow and it's going to get academic and we're going to – research the problem which is still needed right but but what specifically what what is part of this 10-year plan 
So part of the 10-year plan was that REACH Center um, in Watertown, and that was our pilot program to basically bring all the professionals to one location. So when a child goes through something traumatic, uh, they get brought in by um, DSS or law enforcement referral. They get brought in and they give their uh, disclosure statement or whatever to a forensic interviewer. In another room, we have all these professionals that need that testimony. So law enforcement, a medical provider, um, psychologist, uh, state's attorney, all those are viewing the interview. So instead of the child having to go through this interview multiple times and being basically re-victimized every single time, yes. the kiddo only has to tell the story once. Um, and then those professionals can get all the information they need. The kiddo gets a full medical checkup, um, which sometimes, you know, many kids don't receive that. So it, it really offers the family an opportunity to get all the help they need in one place and then get referrals from there. Uh, eventually, we really hope to have four of those centers, so no child is more than two hours away from one of these centers. Uh, so that was pretty crucial in our um, startup. That was one of our main goals. I also helped uh, train law enforcement in those areas because they serve 13 counties in that northeastern part of the state. So I helped train uh, law enforcement in minimal facts interviewing. So instead of our law enforcement having to do a full interview of this kiddo, they only need to ask certain questions, establish if the child is in immediate danger, and get them to the right help. So you kind of set up the framework for for them to do their job more effectively, right. so to speak, because maybe they ha- maybe they're not that professional at it, or they haven't had that much exposure to it. So you help them ask the right questions. Right, because what we found during our task force days was that across the board, you know, the professionals the professionals that we expect to um, handle these cases, whether it's law enforcement, doctors, lawyers, uh, and so on, they only receive about four hours of training in their careers um, or in their education or whatnot. And that's like a 40-year average. So we have recognized that there is a major gap, and we're expecting these professionals to do all these things, and they really don't have the knowledge to do Yes. So that was a big part also that CPCM wanted to do is change the way our professionals are educated and trained in these cases. Um, USD basically gave us a location, you know, a a place where our director and staff could be to begin rolling out this work. Uh, Most of us who were on the task force became the advisory board members like myself uh, to that CPCM. And we've just continued that work. So... Another thing is we have worked with USD to create a curriculum so the professionals in the field can come back and get further education or those who are in college, you know, or attending the universities can actually get education in those things. Uh, That was another big thing. Um, One other piece of it was there are, um, you know, there's sexual assault kits for adults, but there wasn't any for children. So we partnered with the Department of Health to create um, pediatric sexual assault kits, and we got those out, and we also trained the nurses on how to use these things. Um, We improved mandatory reporter training in the state because so many times we have teachers, for example, teachers are mandatory reporters, uh, but they don't receive training. You know, if they suspect abuse, they're supposed to report it, but they don't really, they're not really told how. Yeah, who do they report to? To their to their administration at the school? Is that the first step, or is usually, it law enforcement, or how does that work? Usually it's to their administration. Okay. Um, and but every then it could get lost there. Right. And so we um, we really improved. We actually do an online training now where, where educators can get on 
or any mandatory reporter can get on, take that training, and actually receive a certificate. Uh, but one thing that we also did it was anyone who is a mandatory reporter who makes that report also needs to be aware that law enforcement or DSS will be contacting that initial reporter. Because usually what would happen is, you know, if a kiddo would disclose to their teacher, the teacher would tell the administrator or maybe the principal. The principal would tell the administrator. So you have three people who have heard that story and, again, maybe wrote down different details. Yes. And then the administrator reports it to DSS or law enforcement. And so you have four reports going out from the kiddo's initial testimony. Uh, so what we told the mandatory reporters is if you are a mandatory reporter, if you're the first person that heard that disclosure, you know, expect that you will be contacted. So that way we can find out exactly what the kids yes. said during that initial testimony. Right. What what caused the initial suspicion? Because that that's probably the before the kid's going to realize, like, oh, shoot, maybe I shouldn't have said that or maybe right. I'm scared again. And, right. Yeah. yeah. We want to get to the to the, you know, the meat of the issue. Yeah. That way we can ensure that the kid's getting the, the right help or getting, you know, sent to the right resources. Um, so those were other parts of it. The other two big parts of the um, CPCM tenure plan was uh, establishing this ACEs, which is Adverse Childhood Experiences and Resilience Training. Uh, so basically what that does is we, uh, a year, well, it'd be a year ago, January, um, we were all trained by Dr. Anda, who is one of the initial uh, creators or discoverers of um, what Adverse Childhood Experiences actually does to a person. And so basically what that is, is it's a, he, they created a study. It was Dr. Anda and Dr. Vincent Filetti. They created a study that looked at how um, childhood trauma experienced before the age of 18 can impact us later as adults. Not only does it impact, you know, children in their development, but later on we can see those, those symptoms and those things come out. So what we do now, there was 26 of us that were originally trained. Um, we now go into communities, businesses, agencies, whatever, and we train them to be more trauma-informed. So we take them through some brain science, epigenetics, um, and those types of things to help them understand that trauma really can affect us down to our, our genetics. And so later on, so say a kiddo goes through intense trauma at the age of two, you might not see symptoms of that until they're in their early adolescence or adulthood. And so basically what that does is it helps people understand um, instead of asking what is wrong with you, instead of instead of just kind of placing that blame, be more understanding and say what happened to you. And so then what we do is really try to build up those resilient communities and help them, you know, change the conversation. So um, we've trained just about 8,000 people across the state wow. now. Yeah. So it's just under 10% of the state has been trained in a year. <laughs> so that's pretty exciting. Um and then the other part of it is the enough abuse training. And so that deals with the prevention piece of it. And once again, going into communities, teaching how do you prevent child sexual assault, especially um, because it's easy to say, you know, we want to prevent our kids from, you know, getting in car accidents. So we buckle them up safely and yeah. belts, you know, and, and car seats. But really helping adults understand this is what you look for in prevention and this is what you can do to step in. Well, we're going to take a little break. When okay. we come back, we're going to talk more about uh, next steps and about maybe some of the frustrations with government along the way, but victories too. Yeah. Be back with Mary Beth Holsworth.
The presenting sponsor of The Lanyard is Ben's Brewing Company. We are a brewery, tap room, and speakeasy located in Yankton, South Dakota. Our beers are on tap in several South Dakota cities. Visit us online at bensbrewing.com. Good people drink Ben's beer. Hey, Lanyard listeners. It's your favorite cobblers, Brennan and Mandy. Well, we know Ben has kept you pretty up to date on all the craziness happening at Boston Shoes to Boots lately. Yes, we are in the middle of a remodel and store floor expansion. And we need the space. Boy, do we. Yes, since taking on this adventure in 2016, we've continually added brands that we felt pretty good about and that could fill a need in our store and in the community. Echo has been a big hit among men and women. Not only are their shoes comfortable, but they're well-made and stylish. We have these adorable slip-ons for women that we cannot keep on the shelves. I have them in all three colors, the black, the rose, and the pewter. Yes, she does. And for guys, they make classic styles that pair great with jeans, shorts, and slip-on dress shoes because who wants to tie these days? No one. We've also brought in Chaco. These are the strappy-looking sandals that are all the rage on college campuses. Yep, I got myself a pair to feel young again. And you know what? It worked. It did, huh? It sure did. I took them on my recent camping trip, because you can take them to the beach. We went hiking and biking, and they gave me great support and comfort while I was being active and through the rest of those long summer days. Thanks for listening to The Lanyard, and stop in to Boston Shoes to Boots, where service and style can't be beat. Or visit us online at bostonshoestoboots.com. All right, we are back with Mary Beth Holsworth. Tell me about the coffee beans you brought down for me today. Which uh, varieties did you bring me? So I brought you all four that I have right now. Um, I brought you my Andean Highlight, which is a light roast. And they come. those beans actually come from Peru and Colombia. Um, when I went to Peru, I just fell in love with the Andes Mountains. And so when I developed this blend, I was like, I have to just highlight how amazing those mountains were and, you know, the whole symbolic waking up and, and that type. One thing I don't understand about coffee is I, so I, I drink a lot of it. I consume a lot of it. And when it comes to beer, which I also consume a lot of, I know I can speak the lingo and the language very well. Like I know IBU, ABV, I know what every, um, standard in judging of beer means. Right. So, but with coffee, like when I see like, Oh, that's Colombian or that's, that's, uh, African or what, I don't understand what that really means. Obviously I know which country it comes from, but like, could you look at country of origin and, and give me an idea of like, Oh, that's going to have this characteristic. Um, not always because it also depends on the growing practices and the processing practices. Um, there's a lot of different ways that coffee is processed. Um, and so it really can all depend on the size of the bean, the quality of the bean, the soil that the beans grown in, um, so there's a lot of variables. So how would you know that as a consumer? You just have to try it and uh, find your much. preferences? Yeah, and it, it really is all about preference. I mean, I try to look for, you know, my company that I purchase my beans from, um, it's Berman Coffee Traders, and they do such a sensational job at really telling you everything about that bean. Um, and so I know the altitude that they grow at, um, if they're in more of a, a rich volcanic soil or yeah. if they're in more of a sandy soil, I know everything about the drying process um, because that's different some beans are washed some beans are like my favorite is um, black honey processed uh, so I get to so know, what does that mean so that means so basically the coffee bean it looks like a cherry and when it's honey black honey processed they leave a lot of that meat 
or the, you know, like the fruit on it and then it dries and then they clean that off after it dries that mucilage off um when it's washed that bean completely gets washed off basically all you have is that pit which is essentially what the coffee bean is so um depending on the process it's which is all very hands-on i mean they have people with uh they have the coffee beans on these screens basically and they're constantly being turned yeah um and all those things can contribute to what kind of grade or what kind of quality that you're getting or what kind of flavor you're getting it's crazy complicated yeah (laughs) i kind of i just want to be more knowledgeable about it because as somebody who consumes so much i feel like well and also i I buy premium right so i don't i don't buy like folgers so i i feel like I feel like uh, me spending a lot of money on coffee would feel more legitimate if I knew the language of, right. of coffee. I got to <laughs> well, get I better. I always invite you to come up and you know <laughs> check out my roasting process. Um, and I think that's one reason that it tastes so much different than you know like Folgers. Yeah, is because we are buying premium beans from small farms. Um, the roasting process is very much smaller, more hands-on. Um, you know, I really work to ensure that I have the right temperature, the right airflow. Uh, to bring out the best flavor for each bean. I spend countless hours taste testing, you know, woe is me. Like, the best thing ever is taste testing all yeah, this yeah, coffee. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's what I think about running a brewery, too. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, but then I also brought a medium roast, which right now is um, out of Peru, out of the Junin re- region of Peru. Um, and then I brought two darks, the Mexican dark and the Peruvian dark. So, um, so yeah, I gave you a little bit of everything I have right now. So, so I have to not only understand my what I'm tasting, I like note what i like and what what the aromas and smells are but i gotta know my geography a little bit too with coffee yes definitely (laughs) (laughs) okay so when we were talking before the break we were talking about some of the progress that was being made uh with jolene's law and some of the things that came out of that but it wasn't uh it wasn't like a linear process right like as i recall jolene's law got passed and then it got stricken down and then it's back again is that kind of how it went yeah, the first year that we um, brought it forward through Senate and legislation, it it passed unanimously. I mean, everyone was completely on board, very excited about what we were doing, maybe didn't understand everything that we were going to do, but they supported it. Um, and then the year that we actually ran into some opposition, it wasn't necessarily about the work we were doing. Funding, let me guess, money. Well, um, it was actually more of a personal dislike towards our chairperson. Oh. Um, so it didn't even have any... Real politics. It. it was just strictly politics. So oh, garbage. that was really frustrating. And I remember Jolene and I were texting each other right after it was basically killed in session. And, um, you know, I, you know, we had this conversation, you know, just that, you know, there's got to be something that's going to come out of this. There has to be a reason. And um, it was pretty incredible. Governor Dugard, you know, Jolene was amazing and she has all these great connections and she basically got in the media and she's like no this absolutely cannot happen you guys don't understand what you're doing um governor dugard listened and he said i completely support what we're doing we're going to find funding for it we're going to it's going to happen uh, regardless of whether or not it got killed. yeah so while it was incredibly frustrating at the time it gave us a lot of media coverage um and really got what we were doing out there yeah so at the time it was extremely stressful but looking back uh it was really uh, kind of beneficial because it gave it gave us kind of a platform, a bigger platform to talk about what we were doing. Yeah, you know, so I'm I'm pretty left of center. Uh, I I don't talk about politics on the show, but there are a couple times where Dugard really stepped up and like just 
saw through some of the madness and was just like, this makes sense. This is what's right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at least res- very respectable on, on that. So, Absolutely. so he was your big ally. He was, you know, awesome. we, we really couldn't have went forward without his support, um, in a lot of ways. So, so I want to talk about, you know, we know the trauma that happened to your family and many families across the world, but th- does this happen to people who come from a certain like economic status or is it, are certain races more prone to abuse? Is there gender issues or is this kind of something that affects all populations? It really is, um, you know, it really isn't picky. It it affects everyone. And, you know, we can look at the statistics and, you know, one of the statistics out there is one in four girls and one in seven boys mm. are sexually abused before they're 18. Um, I tend to think it might one be... One in four girls, girls, one in seven boys, right. that, that high. Yeah, it's actually 10 times more common than all cancers combined. Wow. Right. So I guess when you think about how prolific that is or, or common, what what constitute abuse? Just anything that's inappropriate or is it, I mean, like for instance, how do those stats get calibrated? Because it just seems like such an unbelievably high number. And that's that's really the dif- the, the most difficult part of this is yeah. the, the data collection. Yeah. Um, and across the nation, there isn't one method of how this, this data has been collected. Yeah. Even in our state, there's not one method. And that's one thing that we're working on in, at CPCM is improving our data collection. Um, but yeah, I mean, typically when you look at abuse in, in child sexual abuse, it really is, you know, inappropriate fondling, touching, yeah, coercion um, of any kind. Yeah. And, you know, when, when you're talking to your kiddos, you know, it kind of gets to the point where you, because I talked about grooming. And so when I'm out there talking to parents, or adults, you know, I say, you know, you want to get to where you're telling your kids, you know, to let you know about any touch. Um, it used to be this whole good touch, bad touch thing. Yes. And that's really confusing for children because sometimes sexual touch well, maybe feels they've good. Been, and, and maybe they've been coached that this right. is good and yep, that is bad. Exactly. And so what we want to do is we want to be aware of any touching that's going on. I mean, say, for example, you know, because I talked about that grooming piece of it. You know, if someone is has, you know negative intentions maybe they begin touching the child just on their shoulder yes and then maybe it goes to the small of their back and then maybe it goes to other parts of the body that's you know like the genital area so what i tell my kids is you know tell me about any touch and i mean it could be and you'll get (laughs) then you'll get things like well my cousin touched my butt oh really what were you doing well we were playing tackle football (laughs) okay well that's okay you know but then you can also because child sexual assault is an adult problem it's not a child problem we don't want to give the kids the responsibility. We want them to know that they can talk about anything, but we also want to take the responsibility in ourselves. So that way, when a child is confused about what is going on, they know that they can come to you and you can sort it out, not the kid. It should not be the kid that has to figure it out what's going on. Now, I apologize if for my ignorance on this question, but I would think that this is still a male problem. Men, men are the abusers. Is that the is that the case? Unfortunately, a majority, but it's not it's not all black and white. Um, you know, and you can look at any headline, and there are plenty of female abusers um, out there. And especially when you start looking as kids get into the teenage years, that's where we start seeing a lot of um, female on young adult males. But certainly, it's not it's not saying that all men are bad or anything like that. Um, 
it is just for whatever reason that is where a lot of that is coming from. How about in South Dakota, since we have a, a we have very large Native American populations uh, reservations, are they getting the same help that we're getting off the reservation? Well, when you say help, you know, I do want to point out that resources across the state, especially in rural communities, are very slim. Um, you know, for example, when I went through this with my family, we had to drive all the way to Sioux Falls for a counselor. Yeah. Oh, um, boy. So, it, so that's four hours. It, yeah. 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 So it was, um, you know, really anywhere in the state, there is a huge gap in resources available. And, yeah, I certainly do think that the reservations, you know, are native um, Native American areas, they're just not getting what they need either. Um, but they are involved in the conversation. We have um, several stakeholders on our CPCM advisory board that are tribal members and, you know, working very hard to be able to address this issue all over the state. So how are your kids doing? This has been 10 years? 10 years, Yep. So uh, what's that recovery journey? How's their trust with adults? You know, now they're doing very well. Um, it was it was a long time, though. And, um, you know, certainly it's easier to look back and be like, yeah, we made it through. But in the thick of it, it was really difficult. I mean, um, it really changes the entire dynamic of a family. You know, it was, um, you know, we had to take doors off of their bedrooms just to make sure you know, they weren't hurting themselves because self-harm is always a concern. Um, you know, is there was there was issues of just um, extreme anger. Uh, that was really early on, even as little kids. You know, they were just very angry, felt a lot of guilt. Um, I remember, and I always tell this example when, we, when I tell our story, but uh, my five-year-old, so he was probably, he was probably about seven at this time. He just was really angry and... Um, I mean, just almost uncontrollable. And I took him to the sink and I made a paper box and I let water trickle into that box while I'm talking to him. And I said, you know, everything that we have in our lives uh, is basically like that water and we're that box. And if we don't handle what we have going on and if we don't learn to work through those emotions and those feelings, uh, it'll eventually destroy us. And as I talk, the bottom of that box falls out. And, um, you know, it kind of clicked for him. And he said, oh, it's like if you have a heavy backpack on full of books and you start swinging around and you hit all your family. <laughs> like, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. You know, what happens to us if we don't deal with it certainly can hurt the people we love. Um, so there was a lot of things to work through. Um, you know, fear of needles. We had, uh, at, when we went to Child's Voice to do just the, all the testing after the abuse was disclosed, um, my oldest son kind of really struggled with the fear of needles um, just because of that association. So we had a lot of things to work through, but um, one thing that was really huge for us is we talked about forgiveness, and that's really hard uh, for a lot of a lot of survivors, but also a lot of just people. Yes, uh, you know how can you forgive? And you know one thing I told my boys, it's not that he deserves forgiveness any more than anything else, or it's not that we're saying what he did was okay. It's just that's we have to let go of that pain. Yeah, it's not necessarily about doing anything for him it's about what you're doing for yourself. for yourself yep exactly so that was a big part of it um and you know they are doing really well my oldest uh like you had mentioned earlier he graduated high school and he's actually going into the marines he leaves in about three weeks to basic training and um so that's pretty amazing and he's pretty has, intense huh it is yeah but you know <laughs> one thing that we learned in our aces training is that people who have gone through a lot of trauma really are good at those um, 
tough environments yeah. and those, you know, intense situations. They can think on their feet, those type of things. So he recognized that and he loves his country. Um, he's dating an amazing girl and, you know, so he's, he's doing really well. Um, you know, he had to learn how to work through things and, and whatnot. My second son is, uh, he's working really hard for a farmer rancher right now. And, um, you know, they both were involved in band and, you know, really active in their communities. My second son's in wrestling. Uh, and then I have two younger sons now and they weren't, they're not survivors, you know, yes. they didn't experience that. But anyway, it's just, it's fun to see all their interaction together. And yeah, I'm really proud, you know, and that's one thing we really want people to understand is there is still a life after trauma. You know, yeah, you might have to go through some stuff, work through it, you know, stretch yourself to every resource you can find, really dig. Um, but there is still life after trauma. And that's one thing we always want people to know. And and that is not what should have to define you for the rest of your life. No. Yes. No, we, you know, it's, it's part of your story, but it's not the end of the story. Yeah. You know, there's always hope. So living in Gettysburg, another question that would come to mind then is just, you know, you, you said you had access to a counselor in Sioux Falls. Um, were there times that you thought about moving away and getting to a bigger city, getting more resources, you know, not to mention saving yourself the gas mileage for <laughs> coming and having all those meetings? But uh, why, why do you live where you live? Well, for a long time I was there, um, you know, mostly just because my, my husband at the time, we had ranch. We had a ranch. Yeah. We had livestock. And you can't really pick up all 130-year cows and, you know, tootle down the road to Sioux Falls. You were, you were married not only to him but to a business. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now I remain there, you know, because I, you know, I still have children with him and it's, you know, just how the situation is. Um, but, you know, small towns are great. And, yeah, I think there would be a lot of resources and sometimes it still is tempting to, you know, to want to be able to live where there are more things for my uh -huh. kids. Um, but, you know, our small town, you know, it's it's been kind of a 50-50 thing where sometimes people aren't really sure how to, you know, just adjust to the news and of course when you live in a small town everyone knows um but also you know there has been a lot of support and you know i i moved around a lot when i was a kid and i never wanted that for my kids and so that was kind of a a, a big factor in staying yeah yeah where, where did you grow up where did you where were you born oh, i was born in montana i went um most of my school years in wyoming um, various places in Wyoming, but uh, a majority of like high school was in Glendo, which is a tiny little town, about 200 people now. Um, in South Dakota? In Wyoming. In Wyoming, okay, yep. yeah. So, um, but I've been in South Dakota, I've been in Gettysburg area for about 15 years now. South Dakota is big compared to Wyoming, right? <laughs> it's like 500,000 versus 800,000 something yeah, like that something like that yeah. <laughs> but rural has kind of uh kind of been the way of life for you yeah I grew up ranching and you know training horses and that type of stuff um I can't imagine you know anything else for my kids yeah I, I love visiting cities but I just don't think I could live in one <laughs> yeah what's your commute like uh to work yeah uh, it's like two blocks yeah. and no traffic, so it's great. <laughs> yeah, I get a lot of people down here from Sioux Falls, and, and, you know, I love visiting Sioux Falls, but, man, as I get a little older, I'm just like, oh, this five-block walk to work or drive to work, <laughs> right. and sometimes in my case, sorry to say, but uh, sure nice. It is nice, and I have friends, you know, in, in large cities, even in, um, like, I took my boys down to New Orleans for Christmas, and 
it was shocking for them to yeah. see just all the vehicles. And, you know, I always joke that my biggest traffic jam is, you know, maybe a combine and a couple you yeah. know, grain carts or, you know, a family <laughs> pheasants crossing the road. So <laughs> I like it. <laughs> How is your town doing? What's what's going well in, in Gettysburg and what's what have, have we lost over the years? You know, Gettysburg is a pretty strong community. Um you know, recently we had a young man who was uh, severely injured in a car accident, and the whole entire town, his name is Charlie, and the whole entire town came together and did this amazing fundraiser for him. Um, I donated coffee, various businesses donated things or set up booths, um, and, and that's one thing that Gettysburg really excels at. Um, you know, yeah, you have your small town problems and, you know, those issues that go along with everyone knows everyone's business, you know, that type of thing, yep. but when it comes down to the nitty gritty when someone needs something the town pulls to, to pulls together strong um, community right and you know i will say it was it was a long time for these rural communities to acknowledge that things like child sexual assault happen yes um you know it's it's another one of those we live in a safe place and we don't want to think that anyone it's not polite to to you know maybe raise up some of these issues right it is it's really it's really hard um but you know in the last Gosh, I spoke at Children's Day at the Capitol in January, and that was kind of like an eye-opening experience for these a lot of communities. Um, so, like, I've spoke, uh, I've done our trainings at even even my son's school. And a lot of these communities are realizing, you know, you, you turn on the news and you can see that there's trauma everywhere. And so a lot of these small communities are like, you know what, this is happening and we want to be on board. Yes. So, um, you know, I, I love Gettysburg. It's home um, in a lot of ways. Uh, so it's... It's a great place to live, really. Are there is there a diner? Are there restaurants still in that small town? We have um, two restaurants. I used to cook at one, and now I still waitress at one. Um, we have oh, one of your four jobs. Yeah, one of my four jobs. <laughs> yeah, there's the two twelve mini mall, and they kind of have a coffee shop and a great like mini mall. And then there is the firehouse diner, and yeah. so um, yeah, they're both great places to eat. And then of course there's two places at the river. Uh, there's Bob's Steakhouse and West Whitlock. And oh, sure. So you're in a big fishing area, too. Yes, Whitlock fishing Bay. and pheasant hunting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So walleye is is king around there. It is. Yeah. I didn't catch any the other day, but <laughs> maybe next time. <laughs> so let's talk about what's next. So we know part of what your mission has been over the last 10 years. What could it look like over the next 10 years? Is it more of the same? Are there new projects for you? What What are some signs of progress? Um. I think the big thing, uh, for example, with this ACES training, a lot of the trainings that we have done, everyone asks, okay, what next? What do we do to get these resilient communities going? Um, and so that is one thing that we're working um, through CPCM is to develop. Like, how can we, you know, give a checklist to say, here are some examples. Uh, I just trained staff at the South Dakota Women's Prison last week, and that is something that will continue because, you know, I feel personally that the two – biggest areas that need that trauma-informed approach is, is schools because these kiddos are going through a lot of stuff and sometimes the, the teacher is their best friend yeah um but then also in you know we have we have a huge prison population that you know they're not bad people and that's what we really try to help everyone understand it's not that they're trying to go out of their way you know they don't wake up in the morning and say i'm gonna go you know break a law and end up in jail tonight yeah. Um, they are dealing with a lot of trauma in their background. And so the more resource, resources we can get in place for our um, prison population as they begin to rehabilitate is so crucial. And I think um, if we can increase 
the education and the resources for our children and the education and resources for our inmates, I think a lot of things are going to start to improve in the state. Um, and certainly our stakeholders at CPCM and across the state, even at Children's Home Society, um, those are all things that we all feel passionate about. It's one thing that we all agree on. Like, these are things that we need to be focusing on. So, um, you know, I always tell everyone if anyone is interested in ACES training or the Enough Abuse training, they're completely free. Uh, you just have to contact CPCM, um, the Center for Prevention of Child Maltreatment, or Children's Home Society, and we'll get you in touch with one, we typically train with two presenters. We'll get you in touch. We'll get it scheduled. We have two films that we can show with the ACES training. Uh, so those are the really big things. You're going to continue to see CPCM be a part of legislation. You know, we'll, we'll keep adjusting things when we feel that it needs to. We'll be supporting bills that we feel need to be supported. Um, and so really, and anyone, like I said, can go on the website and really check out the work that we are doing. And, you know, personally for me, I just... I'm going to keep focusing on those things because I I really believe that's going to be what's going to make our state stand out. So the the ways that people can help then is to get educated, to get involved, to be more aware, to make their communities more aware, but also when bills come in front of the legislature to speak out and say this is important, we need to help make the proper funding for this? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. funding is so hard. Uh, you know, everyone says, well, why don't you get paid for what you're doing? Well, that's because funding is really difficult. And we're in a low tax state. We are. Yeah. And so, you know, just supporting the organizations that are really trying hard, you know, across the state, there is always, you know, Missouri Shores and Piers doing, um, you know, fundraisers or Safe Harbor in Aberdeen, you know, places like that are constantly doing fundraisers, but they're also in need of goods at their domestic violence shelters, you know, just any way that you can reach out. And that's really what building that resilience community is about, is um, getting out of your own circle of influence and getting out of your comfort zone and getting involved and requesting ACEs trainings, requesting a film screening of Paper Tigers or, you know, requesting an enough abuse training, anything that is going on. And CPCM is really good about having anything that is going on. They put it on their website. Yeah. So if you're just looking for something to do and you want to make a difference, check out the website and just get involved or just show up. I mean, even you showing up and learning one thing can make a huge difference. Well, I feel like I've learned a lot today. Uh, I know it's not easy to share family stories, family traumas, but you've been doing it a long time, and it, it probably hasn't been easy the entire time. No. But, but what you've done is courageous and important for the lives of others. Yeah. I think looking at the end result and just knowing that hopefully someone will have hope or someone will be protected is just yes. the biggest thing. That's what makes it worth it. Mm-hmm. Well, I really appreciate the conversation, and thanks again for making the big drive down here to yeah. Yankton. Yeah, thanks for having And we'll have to do me. it again sometime. Absolutely. If you want to hear more interviews like this, please share out the lanyard. If you know somebody who get value out of this podcast, we're on all the podcast platforms. We'll be back next week with another interview, somebody creating a cool company or a cool community or making an impact on a community. Thanks for listening. <laughs>